I don't know what your favourite Bible story is, um, but mine is a really obscure one in the Old Testament, in the book 2 Samuel. Um, we've got two little girls called Jemima and Rowan, and I think one of the reasons why the Lord hasn't yet given us a boy is because my favourite character in the Bible is a guy called Mephibosheth, which I know for a fact if we were to be given a little bundle of boyness, um, I'd have to call it Mephibosheth. So currently we've been blessed with girls, but... Um, there's a, it's a really fascinating story because King David, he's a big, a, big, a big deal, especially in the Jewish church even today. And he is kind of seen as the king of kings and he's doing everything right. And he has this enemy called Saul. And Saul has this son called Jonathan. And, and weirdly, almost in Disney-like fashion, that guy, David's best friend, is, is the son of his enemy, Jonathan. And when Jonathan and David are hanging out one day, they're in a wheat field. It's all very nice. And they make promises to one another. And Jonathan says, please promise that you you will always help my family, even when I die. And so in this battle, a couple of chapters later, David and Jonathan are killed. And then what happens is David, a few months later, is looking for some remnant of Jonathan's family by which to bless. So he's going around Israel, seeing if anyone knows of any relationship to Jonathan to bless him. And it says this, if you have a Bible, why don't you just whack it over to 2 Samuel 9. It says this, we'll kind of skim through it a bit. Um, so David's looking around, he says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to, which, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then, and then he's told that, yes, in fact, there is one person. He lives in a random house, but he is lame in both feet. That's important because in the time that the Bible was written, that kind of excluded him from two main things. One, for service, but two, dueling. You couldn't have a fight, mano a mano, with someone who wasn't in the same physical condition as you. And the thing is, is that what was common in the day is that if someone took over the throne, then they would do all they can to eliminate or exterminate the, the person who did currently have the throne's family. And so this guy has kind of hidden, gone into hiding because of fear that he might lose his life because he's related to the person who had the throne before. And so this person gives him this bit of knowledge about who he is. And then he finds him, and his name's Mephibosheth. It says this in, in, in verse 6, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth. Isn't it such a great name? So you can all say it. Go on, one, two, three. So nice. At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. Why would he be afraid? Well, because he might lose his life. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, who's the person who told um, where Mephibosheth was, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then down to verse 12. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. It's an amazing story. A bit bizarre. But I think it relates to a lot of us. The thing is, is there's so many things that stop Mephibosheth from feeling loved by the king. And there's so many things that stop us from being feeling loved by God, feeling worthy. There are so many barriers. Not only did he have a physical disability, which excluded him socially, he had a fear that David would eliminate him. And he also had a state of mind that meant he could never imagine as being worthy. 
a dead dog like me. I didn't grow up going to church whatsoever. My parents divorced when I was two, and um, my dad looked after me and my older brother and older sister. We lived in council housing and kind of moved around from council estate to council estate. And when I was 10, my, brother, uh, my older brother left home. And when I was 12, my older sister left home, uh, leaving just me. And there was all kinds of chaos going on at home, all kinds of different things that, um, that meant a 14-year-old me just didn't know how to handle life well. And so I jumped on a train in a place called Littlehampton where we lived, and I locked myself in the toilet and went all the way up to London, Victoria, I got out, I jumped through the barriers, and then ended up on my mum's doorstep. She worked nights at the time. She came back from work to find me curled up on her doorstep. And so I moved to London, and I kind of thought London was a bit like Frank Sinatra's New York. You know, it's just like, start spreading the news. I'm here. I'm going to smash London. It's going to be amazing. But the thing is that I worked out within 24 hours as my mum, unbeknownst to me, was an alcoholic, and my brother at the time was a pirate radio station DJ. Do you remember those? So you could, you could hear our house about three streets away and you could smell it a bit closer because of the drugs that were being consumed. But it was just chaos. It was all kinds of chaos. But the thing is, is one thing about this story is like Mephibosheth, the king often seeks us out long before we seek him. And so I want to rewind a little bit because when I was 10, I had three mates called Joel, Tom and Ben and they dragged me to something that was one of my worst nightmares, but it was an outdoor Christian concert. Right. The thing is, is before this point, my only theological framework um, was found in Sister Acts 1 and 2. And so I had had no knowledge of what was going to happen. But these three guys, they brought me to this outdoor Christian concert. And my mate Ben's uncle was in the main band and so he gave me a CD. And for whatever reason, I held on to it. And when I left home, when I was 14 years later, I brought with me two CDs. The Beach Boys Greatest Hits and Delirious Deeper. I had no reason why. I, I, I wasn't a Christian at all, but, I, but for some reason I found something in those lyrics. But also backtracking a bit, every week when I lived on that council estate, a minibus from a local church would come onto our estate and they'd all be really happy, really lovely. And they'd take us laser tag and bowling and basketball things and, and all kinds of weird activities. And they were just really lovely, lovely people. When I moved to London, I met three people who were Christians. One was a guy called James who sat on my school bus every day. And every week he would say, how was your weekend? Not because he was interested, but because I was polite and I'd have to say, well, how was yours? And then he would say, well, Sunday, you should hear my pastor preach. And he would then go off on what everything his pastor had said. I also met um, a teacher called Mrs. Pern, who at one point I got in a fight in science. And she stopped me from getting excluded. She sat me down and said, "I, I, I should exclude you because of violent behavior. But if you commit to meeting with me every single week and just telling me about what's going on in your home life, then um, we'll, we'll kind of forego that and see what goes on. Years later, when I started going to church, I saw her in the front row of our local church. I had no idea she was a Christian, but she showed me grace. And one other person, a girl called Laura, who um, she was the kid that every teacher has. If you're a teacher, you know this kid. They're the one that you always get to introduce themselves to the new person at school because they're a really nice, outstanding student. They'll take you around. And, and our school was so rough, I had a police station built into it because they were getting so many call-outs that they thought, we'll save on transport and, and just build it there. But this person was an out, outstanding student. And, and nearly on a weekly basis, she would just say how great church was. Do I want to go? Do I want to go? Do I want to go? But then... When I was 15, I was having a pint with my brother in a local pub, and a guy came in selling illegal DVDs. Do you remember those before the download button, right? Yeah, 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 before that button. Um, and I went through his little collection for five pounds, and I took home with me The Passion of the Christ. And I put it in my DVD player. Luckily, it worked. It was region two or whatever. 
And, um, and I was just overwhelmed by this image of Jesus. The thing is, before, I just thought Jesus was this kind of holy person who, um, who people kind of use as a kind of moral superior person to make me feel bad about myself. And, and yet, in this, in this kind of um, strange adaptation with person walking past a cop popcorn as I'm reading it and squinting to see the dodgy subtitles because it was such a bad copy, but I, I found in it a Jesus who was human, who hung out with the people that no one else wanted to hang out with. And suddenly, I saw around his table people who I could probably sit alongside. I didn't feel excluded from them. The thing is, God is in pursuit of you. He's in pursuit of all of us. And then I was invited that same week to church by that girl, Laura, and I said yes. And the thing is, the church community showed me what love looked like way before they taught me anything about the Bible. I was neither judged nor critiqued by my lack of knowledge. And the pastor mentored me and took me out for breakfast every single week and and just loved me into life, really. And my discipleship curve, if you put it on a graph, was intense. I went from having no knowledge of the Bible to, to like gorging on it, to like wanting to devour it. And I, I bought a pocket-sized one so I could carry it around with me everywhere. I love the stuff. The thing is, is David's grace to this character, Mephibosheth, is an amazing picture of God's grace to us. We are all at some stage Mephibosheths. We are hiding. We're often poor. We're lame in some ways. And fearful before our king comes to us. We're separated from our king because of other stuff that people have done to us. We're also sometimes separated from our king because of our own actions. We're separated sometimes because we don't know what love looks like. And yet our king seeks us out before we seek him. The king's kindness is extended to us because of the sake of another. The king's love is based on a covenant, on a promise And the king's return to us, he returns to us all that we lost when we started hiding from him. And he gives more. And then we have the privilege to eat at his table. We're received as sons and daughters at the king's table with access to the king and fellowship with him. It's the sound of redemption. The sound of redemption is the sound of a child returning to his father. The sound of redemption is the sound of angels cheering with every ounce of their being as one life is turned from going towards a destination that says death to a destination that says life. It's a loud sound. But so many of us here, we're familiar with it. Do you know, music psychologists say that you only need to listen to a song 30 times before you lose all absence of what the song actually meant in the first place. And I think sometimes in church, we're so used to the sound but we've forgotten how to play it. We've forgotten how to play the music. We've forgotten what it looks like. We've forgotten what it feels like. And so we want a personal experience over our neighbor coming to know Jesus. We want a personal touch from the Holy Spirit over just sharing our life with someone who doesn't know anything about Jesus. The thing is, so much of Jesus' ministry was spent telling people that had an active Jewish faith that God's love extends beyond the tribes of Israel. The whole point of Jesus' time on earth was telling the poor and the downtrodden that God's love, power, and mission was for them too. And telling the rich and knowledgeable and those with degrees and those with theological credentials that their, word, their worlds had got too small. You know, St. Augustine, as you all, do, you all know, um, he, he says that sin, the mess that we do, 
is, is like man turned in on himself, like, na- like just staring at yourself all the time. And that's how you get stuck in the mess that, that ruins lives and ruins relationship with God is because we're so, so much of the time we're just spent looking at ourselves. And yet Jesus comes to expand people's horizons and says, you know what? Your faith isn't just for you and your Willy Wonka golden ticket into heaven. It's so much beyond that. And this is amplified so much in, the, in my second favorite story, which is the woman at the well in John 4. And if you've got a Bible, please, um, please stick that open. It's such, a, it's such a great story, and it's so well known. But there's some amazing little um, things that John puts in it. It says this, Now Jesus learned that some Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea. And went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Fascinating verse. Probably wouldn't put it in a birthday card. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating because as you know. like The, the, Samar- the Samaritans and the Jews didn't see eye to eye. Now they were both Jewish by faith. But they were culturally very different people. Um, people who were born in Israel would see Samaritans as kind of being half-breeds or kind of being immersed with other cultures. And so what would happen is they, they thought that if you walked through Samaritan territory, you'd become unclean because of the practices that were going on. And yet Jesus has to go through it. The thing is, there's a 70-mile walk between where Jesus was and where Jesus had to go to. And most people, if they were holy and religious kind of people, they would take that walk on a 90-mile walk to avoid Samaria. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. And they have this amazing interaction where Jesus confronts the Samaritan and and she'd been up to no good and she'd been up to all kinds of stuff that made her feel unworthy. And he gives her an acknowledgement of truth. He says, this is what's going on in your life. That you've been married lots of times before and the person that you're currently with isn't isn't your husband. and, And so you've got some mess to deal with. And John 8.32 later on says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a fascinating encounter. Thing is, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 16. But, but for, years, I, uh, for a couple of years, I'd go home on a Sunday and I could smell the house and hear the house as my brother was just warming up for his nighttime set on Erotic FM. It's not even a joke. It's not even, a, it's, it's the truth. Um, and I'd go home to the sound of drum and bass and I've just had an amazing time with Jesus. And, and I'd go home and you can smell the house and then feel the house as you enter it. And, and I just didn't know how to weigh up my, my Sunday life with my Monday to Saturday life. But the thing is, I became really good at acting. So I'd, I'd go to um, Bible study and I'd say all the right things and, and nod at the right times and say, hey, preach it, amen, or whatever at the right times. And, and then on Sundays, I'd lift my hands up and I, I even bought a guitar and learned how to play four chords. So I started leading, like, leading worship and stuff. I, I got really good at, 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 at making out that everything was okay. But the thing is, is that I was also thinking I was the world's best evangelist because I was getting drunk and getting stoned and talking about Jesus lots thought I was amazing. I'm, I'm right where Jesus wants me to be. And there was one Sunday when I went to church and I'd had a particularly heavy Saturday night. I was 18. I sat at the back of the church and I remember sitting down and I could just smell my breath and it stunk like the drinks I'd consumed the night before. And I realized my clothes, I was, I was just put on a jumper and it just smelled of smoke and all sorts. And I remember the worship band kicking off with the first song. Amazing grace sweet sound saved wretch like me and I remember while the smell of myself was filling my nose 
those lyrics reminding me that grace isn't about the stuff we do. That grace has saved me once when I was 16, but it saves me daily. And so I'm free from having to exercise myself into God's good books. But it's his grace that confronts me like a shovel to the face that propels me into a life of freedom. That actually I was so tired with trying to do all the right things and say all the right prayers and and be part of the right activity that I completely lost the point. I completely lost the fact that God had pursued me and now my response is to pursue him back. The thing is, the encounter at the well is an encounter of grace. It looks rough. It looks hard. It looks like Jesus just confronting her. But actually, it's that that propels her into a life of freedom. He doesn't not only meet the woman where she is at geographically. He had to go through Samaria. But he meets her right where she is internally. And it's because this earth-shattering grace that many people believe in Jesus you just skim down says this in verse 39 many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me everything I've ever done who would say that he saw my internet search history it was amazing it's radical and so when the Samaritans came to him they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days and because of his words many more became believers They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that the man is really the saviour of the world. The thing I love about this story is it's, it's not a rags to riches story or a prison cell to a dog collar story. It's very normal. It's very normal. It's a, it's a person who just knows what they should be doing, but really struggling with this stuff. And this rabbi rocks up at a well and says, you can do more. You can live a life of freedom. You can be free from this stuff. And it's the woman's response saying, yeah, I want that. She learns the music of redemption. And as we share our stories, not our arguments, not our pious theories about the media we consume, our stories, not our theological strong arm in, but it's our stories that prove that there is a God in heaven who, despite our mess, said we can have a place at the table. We need to learn the music of redemption. It's so simple. It's, it's relearning our story, the story of grace that doesn't stop when we became a Christian, but it keeps on going that even though I keep getting, mess, I keep get, getting brought up in all kinds of mess, Jesus still loves me. He never gives up, even if I sometimes drop the ball. Learn the music of redemption. But the thing is, you and I are not Jesus. And we can point people in the way of forgiveness, but we don't always get the benefit of being able to see everyone on the tubes, dirty little secrets. Praise the Lord. But Acts 3, I think, gives us an amazing model of what this looks like. What does it look like to play the song of redemption. Well, Peter and John, you know them well, but Peter's the guy who, he's one of my favourite characters in the Bible next to Mephibosheth. And the thing that I love about Peter, once called Simon, is he just messes up time and time and time and time again. He tries all the time. He's the guy that tried to step out of the boat and, and walk a little bit and then got excited and then fell. Um, and like he tries all the time and yet he drops the ball. But yet Jesus can continually reinstates him. But it's also Simon Peter that amidst his mess, his own baggage, he's one that makes some of the most profound doctrinal claims of the Bible, that you are the Messiah, the Christ. It's him that gets the story of grace, even if sometimes his behavior trips him up. 
And yet we have Peter and John. John's the one who thinks he's the most loved disciple. We'll give him that for a bit until we meet him in heaven and prove him wrong. It's me. Um, and so that, that, that out walking, they've, they've had an amazing encounter with Jesus, an incredible encounter with Jesus. And, um, and Jesus is now ascended and Peter and John are hanging out. And they're on the way for the normal experience of going to church. And they see this guy being carried to a gate called Beautiful. It's a fascinating bit of insight there, why they've, put, why they've called the gate. But then there's a, um, they, they put this beggar who's been there since birth, because again, he has been disabled. Since birth, he's put him right by the gate called Beautiful, and he asks for money. And Peter and John are walking past, and they, and they say to him, look at me. And he looks at them, and he says these words, silver or gold, I have none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And they don't just leave him, they take him by the hand, they help him up. And he then is so enraptured with everything that's happened that he attaches themselves as they're going in. They're like, I've got this speaking gig. I'm about to do it. But they've got this guy who's like so excited and he's jumping up and down. He's dancing. He's running around. He's, he hasn't walked since um, maybe ever, but potentially since he was a baby. And now he's like walking, he's jumping, he's singing, he's dancing. And all these people in the temple, they recognize him because they've passed him every single day on the way to the temple. They recognize this guy. The thing I find fascinating about the story is one thing about the gate, the gate called Beautiful. The thing is about this gate is um, I think some, sometimes we're so quick to say that something that isn't human is beautiful. It's a gate. It's lovely, beautiful. And we forget the beauty of the humanity at the bottom of the gate. We forget that the person sitting at this gate called Beautiful, we're happy to take the snaps of the, of the beautiful thing that's here, but forget this human at the bottom is created in the image of God, formed in his likeness and, and loved and cherished and pursued eagerly. And he has potential to transform the world. But what about the gate? Where is it now? Well, it's here. It's not particularly stunning. It's all right. It's not even a gate anymore. Can't even get through it. The thing is, sometimes we ascribe beauty and worth to stuff that is just going to be bricked up and a bit shoddy in a few years' time. And yet God gives us this, this mandate to carry on loving our neighbour as we love ourselves, to carry on pursuing people and telling them the reckless story of grace and not get distracted by gates and things and buildings and services and stuff like that, but carry on pursuing people just as much as our father pursued us. The problem is, is people are so busy on their way to personal holiness that they forget the guy at the bottom of the gate. The thing is, is the man in the encounter was eternally transformed and his transformation led to a platform to speak in the temple and bring about more and more and more salvation. He jumped to his feet, it says, and began to walk. Then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The thing is, none of us are finished None of us are finished. All of us at some point are sitting at beautiful gates, longing for a touch of God's spirit to help us move, help us dance, help us to jump up and walk again. The thing is, for years after I became a Christian and for years after I made that that commitment at 18, after hearing Amazing Grace, that my life is now going to be a life of honesty and vulnerability, I had all kinds of stuff still going on. 
Despite my embarrassingly low A-levels, I blagged my way onto doing a theology degree. And I got stuck into youth ministry. And I loved it. I started working with Anna Mason, if you know Anna Mason well. She's godmother to one of our children. And, um, and we worked um, a lot together. Didn't do much work, but we, we showed up. Um, but I loved it. I married the girl who first took me to church, Laura. She, um, she was the one who first took me to church. And oh, isn't that lovely? Tale as old as time. So sweet. And we were smashing it. We had moved onto this council estate in Cheltenham. And I was loving life, loving it, absolutely loving it. But the thing is, is there was this dark cloud hanging over me. Nearly every time I'd try and sing a worship song or pray or lead or preach, I'd always have this nigging, nagging, kind of niggling and nagging um, thought in the back of my mind, you're not worthy. There's this stuff going on. You haven't dealt with it. Immensely unworthy. The thing is, the main reason I left home when I was 14 is because life was all kinds of chaotic. And, and so what happened was um, a family friend was asked to look after me. And for four years, he routinely sexually abused me. And so when I ran away from home, I thought, that's what I'm getting away from. That's what I'm moving away from. And then I became a Christian and I thought, this life is amazing. I'm going to pursue this. It's all kinds of stuff. But then I had this like dark cloud just lingering over me. You're unworthy. You're broken. You're used. All this stuff. And so then I started dating Laura, and, and it was amazing, but I thought, oh, before I propose, I, I better tell her, and, and shame kept me quiet, and shame kept it locked down, and shame kept it boxed in, and so I didn't tell her, and then we got married, and then I thought, well, before we start having children, I better tell her, and I just felt, I felt ugly, and I felt inside, I felt that I was just used, and she would just want to get rid of me, and all this kind of thing. And then it was in Zambia, of all places. We were taking a youth group from a council estate in Cheltenham to one of the poorest areas in Zambia. And we heard this testimony of a guy, a guy who said that he had a very similar experience to me and found redemption and salvation. And he also had a hot wife, and, and she was there. And it, and it just gave me faith that potentially, if I work through this, that all the thoughts that are going on in my mind, all those things that, are caught, uh, that kept me like, boxed in, that maybe they're not true. And so I, I, I spoke out and... A three-year messy police investigation started just as so I started to train as, an, uh, as a vicar. So I'd have to, like, commonly leave lectures to answer a phone from a policeman or policewoman and share some kind of grim detail and then go back in to learn about the doctrine of whatever. Sometimes I'll be at New Wine and I'll just be about to speak and my phone would go and then I'd have to go and quickly um, ask Anna to keep ministry going a bit longer and um, obviously easy for her, she'll just crack on. Um, but I'll just have to go and like, divulge some grim detail and then put my phone down and then get back up and just preach. It was just messy, messy, messy stuff. And then in my final year at college, um, just to kick off, we had the court case. It was a five-day long court case. But the thing is, such an intense time, very, very strange, very, very odd. And yet I felt the closeness of God like never before. And since then I felt liberated. I felt lighter. I felt totally at peace with who I am because now there is nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden that I felt like in some way I was like this guy at this gate called Beautiful. And all I needed, I kept on just saying to people, I need money. I need money. I need something that's going to help get rid of this thing. Something that's going to help me in the immediate. Something that's going to help me in the instant. And yet I felt this touch of God that said, you know what? You're not going to get silver or gold. I'm a vicar. It's true. Um, (laughs) But what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Even though we are lame in our feet. We've got nothing to bring to the table. We've got nothing to bring. 
Nothing we can do or say can ever make the invitation feel valid. And yet we're welcome to eat at the king's table. When you play the song of redemption, we begin this cycle again and others hear it and they learn how to play their own song. And stories of redemption spread like wildfire. It was only two days ago when I was chatting to a security guard. Um, I was in Cheltenham with my brother, chatting to a security guard about Jesus. And suddenly he was like, well, when I was 15, I used to go to church in Trinidad. And, and we just got chatting and chatting and chatting. And by the end of it, he was like, I want to give my life to Jesus again. And all we were doing was just chatting about life stuff. I didn't tell him about Bart's doctrine of ecclesiology. I didn't do that. I wanted to, trust me. I'm a nerd. Um, But it was in the storytelling, in the story sharing, and we've all got that. You don't need a degree to share your story. You don't need credentials. You don't need to fly all over the world and speak everywhere to do that stuff. We've all got a story of grace and redemption. As we share it, we encourage others to share theirs. The thing is, we need a church not full of people who know the original writers of the book of Job. Or the difference between the aortist or the pluperfect tense in New Testament Greek. That stuff's really important. It's not. What we need is a church full of people with the courage and the passion to share their story with their neighbours, their colleagues, their employers and employees, their kids and their kids' mates. If you've got children, as you have their mates over, say grace even louder. My, little, my sister isn't a Christian at all. And when her and, um, my, and my three... Uh, nieces and nephews came for dinner we said grace and one of them said what is that I was like well we say thank you to Jesus for what he gives us it's amazing those little things that we take for granted they become an opportunity for sharing redemption and it starts with us do we know the sound of redemption have we forgotten it have we heard it more than 30 times and just lost its meaning do we need to relearn the music is it time for us to step out a bit I've been reading this book recently, and it's, it's kind of changed my world a little bit, um, called The Art of Neighbouring. You guys might have read it before, but one of the amazing things he says is that in the time of Jesus, everyone knew who their immediate neighbours were because you lived in religious ghettos. You kind of knew who they were when, when you talked about neighbourliness. You knew that my next door neighbours, they're, they're neighbours. And so when the person says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbour? And he say, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He's having to expand their worldview. And the thing is, we're really good at saying... Someone on the other side of the world is my neighbour, therefore I'm going to try and help them in whatever I can. And we forget our next doors, the names of the people to our left and right in our very homes, the people who live above us in our flats, the people that we pass by, the people who stand in the bus shelter, the people who get on the same bus as us, who we could potentially say, how was your weekend? So them in particular British sense will say, well, how was yours? And you say, well, the preachers are right. The worship was on fire, though. Do you remember? Can we learn it? Should we get cat passion? 